seen the last time we looked at an Old Testament book and now. So uh, we're going to start our, our theme this fall would be in the book of Esther. Esther is a great book. And if you're not familiar with Esther, Esther is a story of a young woman who uh, God uses to save, her pe- save his people from a ethnic cleansing. It takes place uh, shortly after the exile. As the video said, what happens is, is that God's people are uh, captured by the country of Babylon. And that's sort of where the story of Daniel takes place. Seventy years after they've been exiled from Israel, they are allowed to return. But not all of them go back. And uh, this is a great story. So this, uh, and Esther kind of takes place a little bit beyond the story of Daniel. And I think it's a great story for us to know because uh, the exile stories, that part of the Old Testament that deals with what happened after the fall of the nation of Israel, helps us learn how to live for God when we do not have all the cultural external support systems like they had. They had to survive with God and God alone. And I think that's great news for us who kind of grow up here in Three Hills. Because if you've grown up in Three Hills or you have a Christian family and you're homeschooled or you go to a Christian school or your parents love God, then I want to tell you is that you are a very, very, very blessed individual. Okay? You are not missing out on much. Okay? And uh, so you have to be really thankful that you get to grow up in a season and a time where you get to go be a part of a homeschool, you get to be a part of a Christian school, you have parents that love Jesus, you go to church, you, go to, you live in a community like Three Hills that has historic Christian roots and all that kind of thing. But I want to say that one of the dangers that uh, we have to watch out for as people that have grown up believers in a Christian sending is that it's sometimes easy for us to be too dependent on the external support systems to be strong in our faith, rather than put our foundation on Jesus and Jesus alone. And so when those moments come, when the support systems go away, you know, our families aren't as strong in the Lord as we hoped they were, or the, the school systems aren't what they used to be, or, you know, you move away, or the culture becomes more and more secular, whatever it is. What tends to happen is, is if you put your foundation on the support systems and the support systems are taken away, your faith is shaky. Because you put your faith too much on those things rather than on God and God alone. And all the stories of the exile in the Old Testament uh, that have to do with Daniel or the prophets or the Psalms or Esther or uh, all those sorts of things that happen, Ezra and Nehemiah, they all kind of tell us how to rely on God and God alone in a culture where we don't have the encouragement to do so. And Esther is one of those stories uh, that I would really like to share with you in the next few weeks. Esther is one of the oldest books in the Old Testament. Now, I know it doesn't seem like that because it's kind of in the middle of the Bible. But I want to remind you again that when you read your Old Testament... The, bio, the books in the Bible are not arranged in chronological order. They're arranged by theme. And so what you see, and Esther is actually one of the last ones written in the Old Testament. And for Jews, Jews love this book. If you come from, a, a, if you have an Israelite heritage, they are phenomenally 
enthusiastic about the book of Esther because for them, it kind of roots the Jewish celebration of Purim for them in this. This is why it's, in their, it's, it's considered in their canon. However, for Christians, Esther has been a little bit of a head-scratcher for almost 2,000 years. And I didn't realize that until I actually studied the book, but just a, a couple of fun facts about it is that the Esther is one of the most controversial books in church history, and for the first 700 years of the church, it was never preached or taught out of ever. Okay? By the way, fun fact, does anyone want to know what the most frequently taught book in the entire history of the church has been out of the Bible? Does anyone want to take a guess? No? 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 no. Well, are we going to do 66 guesses? <laughs> it's Song of Solomon. Is the most preached, is the most frequently preached Bible book in the history of the church. Uh, you wouldn't think that, but it is. And uh, uh, Esther uh, happens to be, at least for the first 700 years, the least preached book. On top of that, you have a guy named John Calvin, who is a famous Christian, and he wrote a lot of commentaries and preached a lot. He never once preached or wrote anything about Esther. And historians, there's a little bit of debate upon this, Historians think that Luther himself, Martin Luther, founder of the Reformation, he said that the book should not exist in the first place. So you have all this kind of controversy surrounding this book. And so the question that I get asked, I've been asked quite a bit is, Dan, why are we studying the book of Esther? What do you want to learn? And so what I want to do today is I want to actually set up the book of Esther, and I want to tell you why, uh, or tell you what I, what I think that God would have for us or learn from the book of Esther. And in order to do that, we are going to look at the first eight verses of chapter one. So if you want to turn to your Bibles to uh, Esther chapter one, we're, we're going to look at verses one to eight. And I've titled this message, Everyone and Everything. Because what I want you to see, if you're going to take notes, like if you're a note person, this is kind of like the main gist of what I want you to catch in the first eight verses, is that the first eight verses is about a king hosting the, par the best party with the best leaders who are leading the best country, all to promote the message that he's kind of a big deal, Okay? So we're going to start out, and you're going to look in your Bibles, you're going to notice that verse 1 starts out with this phrase. Now, in the days of Hazazarus, I had to work on spelling that. <laughs> okay. Now, i got to stop there and explain who Hazazarus is, all right? Hazazarus is a very, 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 very famous uh, person in history. He also goes by another name. Does anyone know what it is? What's that? King Xerxes. And Xerxes is a very famous, like, like I said, he's a very famous guy. In fact, he's so famous that they actually made a movie about him, which I pastorally cannot recommend. I've never seen it, but please do not go see this movie. <laughs> okay? Xerxes, if you know, your, you know your history, you know that uh, eventually what winds up happening is Greece goes to battle with Persia. 
And the story of the 300 and all that, the 300 Spartans and all that kind of thing, that's Xerxes, right? So Xerxes was the best king, right? There's a picture of him. I kind of got the tablet from the, or the picture of the, uh, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had about the four nations and all that. That's kind of him. And what I want you to understand is that he is a big deal, that he rules and reigns and towers over everyone and everything in the story. We think he's in his mid-30s by this point, which actually, when you get to, when, you, when Esther is introduced, kind of, uh, kind of makes the story a little bit weird, because Esther would be about anywhere between 14 and 16 years old when she enters the story. So he's kind of a big deal, and what I want you to know is not only was he the best king, around that time, he also ruled over the best country. It says this going on in verse 1. Now in the days of Hazazarus, and it goes, the Hazazarus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Okay? So the big idea I want you to catch here is that at this point in time, Hazazarus is one of the most powerful men on the planet up until this point. I want you to see this. This is kind of a rough scale of the rule and reign of Persia during the time of Xerxes or Xazarus. And he reigned all the way from Egypt all the way over here. And I want you to think about what that meant for a minute. okay? Because what this means is there's no ruler like him at this time. Imagine a leader today that would rise up in power and they could turn Egypt, Israel, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan into one country. Okay? Now, even by today's standards, if you got two of those countries not to kill each other, that would be a feat, wouldn't it? Right? Xerxes has a rule over them all. He's kind of a big deal. So he's the best king reigning over one of the best countries at this time. To give you an idea of how big Persia was, we estimate, historians estimate, it's about 50 million people, give or take. And it's about, in the actual geographical kind of like uh, estimation of how big this country is, is about 3 million square Miles, I believe, if I read my nights. Does anyone know what country comes close to that? Anyone? Russia. Russia. It's about as geographically big as the United States. Okay. So to give you a little bit of context of this, Canada is roughly 40 million people. So imagine for a moment that all the people in the United States just vanished, okay? There's no one living in the U.S. And you took the population of Canada and threw it into a country as big as the United States, and that is Persia, okay? Now, here's an interesting bit of trivia that I found out that I thought might be interesting for you. You might be wondering, in a country as big as the United States, how does one person rule over all that land? How do they get the law out? How do they get the rule out? How do they come up with all the bylaws and stuff and transfer it across the country as vast and as big as that? Well, fun fact that I did not know is Persia is one of the first countries 
that develops the first postal system. Did you know that? They even had a motto for it. Okay, see if this sounds familiar. Neither snow nor rain nor gloom of night stay these valiant couriers from completion of their appointed rounds. What does that come from? That's the motto, motto for the U.S. Postal Service. We stole that from Xerxes. Okay? So the next time you buy something on Amazon Prime and you get it two days after you ordered it, you can thank this guy because he invented it. Okay? It's pretty cool. So he, not only is he the best king and he's ruling over the best country, what I want you to understand is that he also believes his own press. Hazazarus considered himself the best. So he actually, you know, sometimes people are really good at their jobs, but they're just like, nah, I'm, I'm okay. They kind of have like this professional humility about him, not Hazazarus. Hazazarus actually considered himself the best king that ever existed, ever. And you hear it in verse 2. It says this, In those days when King Hazazarus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. Now let me tell you about this throne. This throne, Hazazarus loved his throne. And because it symbolized everything that he valued. Historians told us that it was a beautiful throne. And the picture of him seated on it would display his glory and his prestige and his riches. And he would sit above and high above everyone else. In fact, sources tell us that he loved this throne so much that every time that Persia went to battle and he went in it, he would have people carry his throne into battle as he sat on it. This is a big guy with a big ego. Okay? He also had a palace in Susa. He actually had two palaces. And you know you've made it when you've had two palaces, right? Not only do you have one, but you have a backup one. You had a summer one and a winter one, so you could have good weather all the way around. And what we know of it, it was always placed high above the people. So it was always looking down. So that's the kind of a guy that Hazazarus was. And you might be wondering, for example, well, how does he keep such a vast country in line? Well, the answer to that simply is he got him drunk. He threw a party. He threw the best, he threw, he got all the political leaders that he needed to run the country and he gave them the best food. He gave them the best drink. He handed the best women to them. And he lavished them with gifts of gold and silver. And when he did that, they would do anything for him. Because you care for them. It says this when we go on in the story. Is that he actually threw the best kind of parties. Going on in verse 3. It said in the third year of his reign. He gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media. And the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory. And the splendor and the pomp of his greatness. For many days, over 180 days. So commentators, when I was looking it up, they estimated that you have all these political people, you have all the public servants, all the politicians, all the military leaders, and that would have equaled about 50,000 people. Okay? 
So if you think about it for a moment, he had a six-month-long party for 15, or sorry, did I say 50? I meant 15. 15,000 liters. Okay? And what I want you to understand, this is an interesting kind of side note. When you, when you read through Esther, there's about eight to ten different times in the book of Esther that there's a feast or a, or a kind of like party. And every time there's a party in the story, the plot line turns. I just want you to keep that in mind as you're reading through the book. Okay? And so I want you to think about what exactly it takes to run a party that long. Some of you, how many of you have had people over at your house for like a dinner party after church, you're going to have a potluck or something, hands up. How many of you, after it's done, go, oh man, I'm tired. Yeah, yeah, a few of you, you want to go to sleep after that. Well, if you are that kind of event planner, I want you to think about how much effort would take to plan this party. You have 15,000 liters that all need transportation. You need to house them. You need security because they are leaders. You need to feed them for six months, give them drink for six months. You need to figure out the place settings for six months. You need to entertain them for six months. And how much does it cost? It's all free. Tax dollars at work, eh? Six-month party. This suggests, actually, that Persia, at this moment in time, is doing really, really, really well as a country. Because if you have a party for leaders for six months, where they can take six months off and drink as much as they want, that signifies that the country is at least prospering in some way. Maybe not morally, but you kind of get the idea. Well, why did he do it? The text actually shows us. It says in verse 4, He did this to show off the riches of his glory, the splendor, and the pomp of his greatness for many days. This guy has an ego trip. And you're going to see later on that pride actually is a theme that runs throughout the entire story of Esther. You're going to see it in him, you're going to see it in other people, but you're going to see it here. This guy basically threw a six-month party to show that he was a big deal. I'm a big deal around here. Look how awesome I am and great I am. Everyone have a party for six months. But the text goes on and says this. After the six-month party for all the special people, he held a week-long party for everyone else in the city. It says this in verse 5. And when the days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, that's the city, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So he has a six-month-long party, and then at the end of it, he says, hey, I'm going to invite a party for everyone else, and we're going to have a great party. And you want to know the thing about it? It was a lavish party. Like everything that you could possibly think of at this party was there. For instance, it goes on in verse 6 to say this. At the party, there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods. Now, let me, let me explain this for a minute, okay? Why does the Bible care about what color the curtains are? Do you think the Bible is giving you home decor lessons here? You're supposed to say no to that, <laughs> okay? No. In that day... 
Purple was one of the most expensive colors to try to manufacture. So only the very, 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 very rich could afford it. So kind of think of it like today. In our day, if you want to show how wealthy you are by the clothing you wear, what do you typically do? You buy clothing with a name on it. Someone give me a name of really expensive, a brand name of really expensive clothing. Gucci? All right. There you go. Well, in that day, they wouldn't do that. They would just wear the color purple. So when you actually read Acts chapter 16, verse 14, way, way, way later in the future, when Jesus has risen from the dead and the disciples are preaching the gospel, it says this. Uh, they, <clears throat> Paul met a woman, a woman named Lydia from the city of uh, Thyreta, a seller of purple goods. What it's telling you there, she's very, 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 very rich. And what it's doing here in the story is when it's telling you that the curtains are purple, what it's telling you is this guy is extremely rich. Like we're talking Elon Musk kind of level rich, okay? So he's a big deal. On top of that, he's got silver curtain rods. How many of you in your home have silver curtain rods? Hands up. What? No, like actual silver. This guy did. That's an expensive kind of deal. Moreover, he had marble pillars. So I want you to think about this for a minute, right? Even today, like when you go out of the church parking lot, you see those two kind of columns that kind of hold up the awning. Imagine I went to you and said, you know, let's renovate the church and let's make those pillars marble. What's the first thing you're going to say to me? get a new pastor, <laughs> right? They're rich. On top of that, he had, get this, couches of, how many of you have couches of gold and silver, okay? I don't know anybody in this room where I've been over to your house and I've been like, hey man, nice couch. Oh, don't worry about it. I picked it up, isn't it great? I picked it up at Ikea. It's pure gold and pure silver, that's ridiculous. And the whole palace was filled with this kind of thing. He had a mosaic pavement of pothery, marble, and mother of pearl, and precious stones. He actually had his flooring made up of jewelry. You walked on jewelry. This guy spared no expense. So what I'm trying to get at in all this, oh yeah, I'm not finished yet. This is how elaborate it is says this in verse 7, drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. So let me explain this for a minute. The other day, I went to, I went to the store and I got myself a Slurpee. And I don't know if you've been to get a Slurpee lately, but they have exchanged plastic straws for paper straws. And let me tell you something. If there is something to get your pastor to say not nice words, it's paper straws. Okay? They are awful. I don't know who invented them. That person should have their eyes poked out with one of those straws. They are bad. Okay? I ah! <laughs> So here's, here's why I mention this. When I go to Harvest House, and I order a Coke, and they give me a plastic straw. I feel 
like I'm treated in the lap of luxury. <laughs> but here in the story, gold is treated like a plastic straw. Everyone got a gold goblet that they could drink from with bottomless booze. And if you didn't like having a golden straw, or a golden cup, they gave you something of various different kinds. And the wine you gave, it wasn't sort of the cheap wine, it was the royal wine. Okay? On top of that, he made a rule about drinking. And I don't know if you see, this is the rule he made. In verse 8 it says, And the drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. So, you have as many as 50,000 people in the city all drinking at the same time. To help illustrate what that's like and kind of give you an idea about what's going on, the population of Medicine Hat is 60,000 people. So imagine for a moment that you're in Susa, or Medicine Hat, and that's the same as the entire city of Medicine Hat drinking at the same time as much as they wanted for seven days. How many of you are going to take a drive through Medicine Hat that week? Not very many of you. And this is, this, this is all the setting of the book of, of, of Esther. This is sort of how the story sets up. Is it sets up in an amazing party. Okay? And so what I want you to understand in the first eight verses is this. Is the best king ruling over the best country with the best, with the best people was throwing the best party with purple curtains, silver curtain rods, marble columns, gold chairs, jewelry for sidewalks, gold cups, and bottomless wine. And here's what I want you to catch at it. If you want to hit the next slide for me, guys, my remote isn't working. Everyone and everything that is present in this party, like everyone. What's missing? What's that? Later. <laughs> yeah. The women are actually here. We'll get that later. What's missing in the story? Let me, let me rephrase the question. The question might be better asked, who is missing? Yeah. Yes. Ask, no, she's in the story. Not yet, though. You're right, it's God. God is nowhere to be found. And you consider this very interesting story. That interesting fact is, is that he is, we've just read through the first eight verses of Esther, and God's not mentioned once. In fact, he's not mentioned once in the entire book of Esther at all. There's no mention of God and there's no mention of Esther's morality in the story. There's no mention of him praying. There's no mention of, uh, there's no mention of God delivering everyone or talking. There's no, and that's a very interesting point to bring up because here's what I want you to understand. This, this at, at its core is a story about God saving his people from an ethnic cleansing. And in those moments, when it's that big, when it's that kind of issue, when it's that kind of crisis, you want God to be in the story, don't you? 
You want him to show up. You want something. You want a prophet coming and giving a word. You want the ten plagues of Egypt. You want a pillar of fire. You want an angel. You want God to open up the heavens directly and say something. And you want him to be there. Because when it's that big of a crisis, when a whole people, especially God's people, are faced with annihilation, it's the kind of story where you not only want God to show up, you need him to show up. And in the story, there is, he's nowhere to be found. That's what makes Esther unique. The other thing I want you to picture about this book is that there is actually no mention of Esther's morality. And that's actually what makes this book hard to interpret. Because it's just a story. Because when you read through the Bible, you see these great men and women of faith. Great men and women who have done epically as God is used to do epically as amazing things as Esther. That God always comments about where they're at. So for example, if you read Acts chapter 13 verse 22 talking about David. It says that David is what? A man after his own heart. Or if you read Ruth chapter 1 verse 16. It says that Ruth made a declaration of faith. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Rahab the prostitute in James chapter 2 verses 25 to says, was justified by the works when she received the messengers. In 2 Kings chapter 21, speaking the opposite way about kings who ruled over, over Israel at the time, said that this, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. When it comes to Esther... There's no statement either way. Her morality is, the Bible is silent on her morality on this issue. Which actually makes this the most difficult book in the Bible to interpret, period. Now you think it would be something like Revelation or Song of Solomon or anything that, but historically it's been this book. In fact, I was, I, was, I was looking through commentators on this and I came across one commentator who did an excellent job kind of doing the work of, you know, going through Ruth. But at the end of the book, she said, it's probably not a good idea to ever preach or teach through the book of Esther. <laughs> and so now you're starting to begin to see the problem and the controversy because the, at, the, at the core of it, what Christians for... Uh, the last 2,000 years have been arguing about is this. Why are we learning about God from a book that never mentions him? And why are we learning about God from someone who may or may not love God? I'm not saying that Esther wasn't a believer. I'm saying that the Bible never says one way or the other. And so for 2,000 years, Christians have argued about its place in the Bible whether it belongs there or it doesn't belong there. And so, the, and you kind of see it in the first eight verses, right? There's this massive party, and it's thrown for everyone, great and small alike, and everything but the kitchen sink is, and probably the kitchen sink is at this party, right? And everyone's there except God. And it kind of begs you to wonder, like, why is it in the book if, we're not gonna, if God's not mentioned and we're not really sure about Esther's moral standing. Well, here's what I'm going to tell you. And here's what, I, this is the one I set up for the book of Esther. You see, friends, 
without Esther, we fall prey to a very, very easy lie to believe. And that is, when God is silent in the crisis, he's not moving in the crisis. You see, it, you see at this time, the, the Israelites were facing genocide. And that is a time when you want God to show up. I mean, it is a time when you need a miracle. It's a time when you need a word. It's a time when you need to be praying and hear God's voice through the prayer for him to say something or do something or send an angel or just do something, but he's not there. How many of you today, the book of Esther kind of sounds like your own life. You're going through a crisis right now and God is silent. You might, be facing, you might not be facing a crisis on this level, but you're going through something that if God doesn't show up in some way, you're dead. Like you're over. You're going through your relational issue or a marriage issue or your relationship with your kids are imploding or your health is bad or you don't have enough money to feed the kids. You're in some sort of crisis that will end you and you're longing for something, a miracle, a dream, God to heal you, to speak through a friend, a song, a sermon, something, but you need him to do something. You need him to be active. You need him to divertly there and he's just quiet. You see, friends, in those moments when God is silent, it leads to all sorts of questions. God, do you even exist? God, is this the best that you have for me? Is King Xerxes really the best the way that it gets? Are you going to do something about it? Are you sort of out, out some absentee landlord that has gone on vacation? Do you even care? Do, do, you, do, do you care and lack the power to do something about it? How many of you in your dark moments, the moments where you need him to show, come through, have gone where is God. Here in the story, women are being abused, as we will see later. Money is being misspent on lavish parties instead of helping the poor. And middle-aged men think they are gods. Where's God? He's silent. And here's what I think Esther would have for us today, friends. Is that God is in the background. He might not be mentioned in the book overtly, but God is still working and moving. And I want to say this to some of you who might be in a time of suffering right now, is that if God is silent in your crisis, I want you to know that he's still active in it. Friends, the book of Esther tells us very clearly never to mistake God's silence in your life for his absence in your life. He's still your guardian. He's still working and acting in the world. He's still moving. He's still protecting you. He's still doing something. It says in his word that he works all things out for the good of those who love them, according to Christ Jesus. So when he's silent, he's still doing something. That's why I have labeled the series My Guardian. Because I want you to see that when God is not mentioned at all, he's still working in the background. And he's still moving. I want you to see that God uses 
he's, he, he, still, he still moves in the, in the real mess and moral ambiguity of human history. Because this isn't a story that takes place in Israel, God's people. It's far from that. It's in a different country with a different culture. A culture that does not care about God or has heard about God or even seeks to find God. It tells us that God is still moving. And God uses, faith, uses the faithfulness of even morally compromised people to accomplish his purposes. As you see, as we go on in the story, you're going to notice that at the beginning of the story, Esther does make the wrong, wrong decisions. And sometimes what winds up happening, and yet, even though she made the wrong decisions, God still uses her to accomplish a great work of salvation. And some of you need to hear that today. Some of you need to hear that God uses broken people. That God will use somebody no matter how broken their life is. And some of you need to hear that God can use anybody that he wants. And he chooses to use Esther to save the people. And I think some of you need to hear that because... I've been around this church long enough to know that some of you have a dark past. And you've come to the place where you're forgiven and you believe that the Lord has forgiven you, but secretly, because of the things and mistakes you've made in your past, you believe the lie that somehow God cannot use you. But Esther kind of pushes back at that and says that God uses broken people. Who are you going to see in the future? So that's actually what I want you to glean from Esther today. Is that the part, the setting of Esther starts out with a party where everyone and everything is present but God in this party. And that's a theme that goes throughout the entire book. But I want you to see in this book that even though the God is not referenced or named, you still see God's providence at work. He's still moving in the background. And I think some of you need to hear that because you're going through a crisis right now or you will be going through some sort of suffering and you're going to be tempted to go, where's God? Because he's silent. And I want you to know, friends, that whenever God is silent, he's still moving and he's still acting. Is that okay? Okay, let's pray and let's uh, close with one more song. Father, thank you for today, and uh, we're thankful for the book of Esther, and we're so thankful that it shows the providence of God in the background, that you are moving among the nations, that you move among the people, uh, even when we can't see you, even when we can't hear you, you're still actively working to accomplish your perfect plan. So as we go throughout the day, and, and we might be in seasons of our life where we feel like you're silent, may we never... Uh, buy into the lie that you are not present among us. And all the people said,